When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go Beyond Reality. It's Beyond Reality Radio. I'm your host, J.V. Johnson. Thank you for being here with me tonight. We are continuing our Alien Week programming. Why Alien Week? Because tomorrow night, it's actually already started from what I understand, but tomorrow night and, and Saturday night, uh, there are festivals and celebrations and gatherings in the Area 51 uh, region in Nevada. Uh, as you probably know by now, um, many months ago, a Facebook page was created called Storm Area 51, and several million people followed the page, many of them pledging not just to attend this storming of this secret military base, but also to give their lives for the cause if necessary. And we are now saying to everyone who had been considering that, don't do it, obviously. And the people that put the page up are saying, don't do it. This was never meant to be actually a storming of a military base. It was only meant to draw attention to uh, the cause. And the cause is, let's get some answers. What's going on in Area 51? What does the government know about alien visitations, alien technologies, extraterrestrial presence, the things we see in the sky that we can't explain. What do they know and why aren't they telling us? So that's what the cause is, and that's what's happening in the uh, Las Vegas area, which is close to Area 51, this weekend. As uh, there are several events planned, a lot of them will include speakers on uh, UFO and alien topics, and uh, we're keeping an eye on it with our good friend Joshua P. Warren, who was our guest last night. So that's why it's Alien Week. And we're going to round the week out with uh, Jer- Jeremy Finley. Jeremy is an author. He writes novels, fiction. But his books are based on real stories. And we're going to be talking about some of those real stories of alien abduction. Plus, we're just going to have a general conversation about this alien debate and discussion and UFOs or UAPs or USOs, whatever they happen to be. There are so many um, acronyms that are being used these days or abbreviations. So, And they seem to keep changing. I almost think that's a, an effort to keep our eye off the ball. But Jeremy will talk about all that stuff with us when we bring him on. Uh, tomorrow night, of course, is a best of program on Friday nights. It always is here on Beyond Reality Radio. Then we hope you have a great weekend. We'll come back Monday with Graham Phillips. Graham is an author. He'll be returning to the show And he'll be talking about an account of extraordinary personal paranormal investigation that he took part in back in 1979. And then Tuesday, Tui Snyder, who is an author, speaker, and a photographer, will be with us to decode the often forgotten meanings behind cemetery symbols. I don't know about you. And I I try not to uh, think this is morbid. Sometimes I think I, I wonder if other people think it's morbid. But I love to walk through cemeteries. First of all, they're very generally very peaceful with good reason. But secondly, they always tell a story. When you look at the headstones and the and sometimes their statues or little monuments or whatever it happens to be, it's a, there's a story there. And uh, the older headstones, many of them now have uh, just been kind of washed away through uh, erosion. But if you can go to a cemetery that has some of these really old headstones, like from the even the 18th century, but certainly the 19th century. And you read some of the inscriptions on these headstones. Um, they're beautiful in many cases, but they're also very, very touching. And uh, they tell a story. And I really enjoy uh, strolling through cemeteries. So uh, our guest, Tui Snyder, on Tuesday night will talk about the forgotten meanings behind cemetery symbols. And she'll also share stories from her new, her new book called um, Paranormal Texas. So a lot of great stuff coming up next week here on Beyond Reality Radio. Um 
Let's see. I've got a couple news stories that I wanted to chat about, but I think I'm going to hold them and have uh, Jeremy Finley, our guest, comment on them as well. So uh, a lot of great stuff ahead on the program here tonight. Thank you for being here. Like us on Facebook. Like us on YouTube. Go to YouTube and subscribe to JV Johnson. It'll give you a live stream of the program if you don't have a radio station in your market carrying it yet. Plus, there's, I think, last count, like 350 back shows there for you to listen to watch whatever whatever it happens to be it's a real easy way to do it so uh again that's youtube.com just look for jv johnson i think if you search beyond reality radio you'll find it as well we'll go to break when we come back our guest jeremy finley will join us it's alien abductions tonight on beyond reality radio look out rochester scaricon is coming for you the northeast's leading fan convention for all things pop culture is celebrating its ninth year at the rochester riverside hotel october 18th through the 20th scaricon brings an amazing group of celebrities, panel discussions, film screenings, great vendors, and amazing parties. It's a weekend of fun from start to finish, and it's family-friendly. For more information, visit Scaricon.com and check us out on Facebook. Use the promo code BRR at checkout to save 20% on your admission. That's Scaricon.com, October 18th through the 20th in Rochester, New York. Jeremy Finley. He's the author of Supernatural Thrillers that have received rave reviews from People Magazine, The New York Post, and NPR. Comparing his work to the very popular Netflix series Stranger Things, also The X-Files, and Stephen King. He's also received some of journalism's highest honors, including 20 Emmys and Edward R. Murrow Awards, two IREs, the highest honor given by investigative reporters and editors. And he is the chief investigative reporter for the NBC affiliate in Nashville, Tennessee. Jeremy, welcome back to Beyond Reality Radio. Great to have you again. It's great to be here. I so enjoyed uh, being on, uh, talking to your listeners, talking to you guys uh, about this these subject matters that just absolutely keeps keep us up all, all night long <laughs> thinking about um, what's really out there. So I, I'm thrilled to be here. Yeah, you know, it's it's I don't know. There's something um, inspiring. Uh, I don't even know how to describe it, but. The idea of trying to find some of these answers, you know, when, whether it's a, a Loch Ness monster discussion, a UFO discussion, a ghost discussion, or a JFK assassination discussion, just looking for answers in itself is not only healthy, but it's exciting. It gets the adrenaline flowing. I think so. You know, I, it's, it's what I do every day as a reporter on a million different subjects and, and as a novelist, even though I'm working on works of fiction, you know, it's deeply rooted in research. I, I want my novels to feel like that uh, you're deeply rooted in reality and, and things go into a, uh, a very supernatural bent. But to get there, you have to do the research, right? You have to do uh, know what you're talking about. You have to know what other researchers have looked into. And, um, I, you know, it's it's been the, the story of my professional career going after things that didn't quite make sense and, and trying to make sense of them. And it is, I think you're right, there's, there's kind of an electricity to it. How long have you been in journalism, and specifically, how long have you been an investigative journalist? So I have been a reporter since I was 17 years old. Oh, wow. And so, <laughs> right, so I started working at a, a daily newspaper at my university uh, when I was 17. It was a paid position, and uh, it was such a, and it still is such a great uh, newspaper, the Daily Egyptian at Southern Illinois University. And uh, we were all paid. We all had beats. You know, it was just like a, a regular daily. And I actually had my first taste of doing investigative reporting then, uh, when I was the investigative uh, reporter for even for that newspaper. But uh, truly, I started doing investigations full time about 13 years ago. Um, always done some uh, projects along the way, but really devoted uh, my career to full-time investigative reporting then. And um, it really is, you know, I got into journalism because of the public service aspect of it and simply because I'm just like you, where I just want to ask questions all day long and I have a million questions going all the time. And um, this affords me a profession where I get to do that and I get to ask the tough questions and I get to demand, um, you know, documents from the government and, and fight about it all the time, and um, so it's uh, it's great. It's it's truly the profession, besides being a novelist, that I was you know truly meant to do. You know, every reporter has to ask questions and do a little bit of investigating themselves. However, there is a difference between regular reporting and investigative reporting. Kind of separate the two for us. What's the difference? Absolutely. So I, I describe it as um, reporters uh, on the ground that we refer to as. 
general assignment reporters in the television business or, or just, you know, beat reporters. Um, they, they go out to cover uh, the news. Investigative reporting is uncovering the news. It's, it's a very simple way to describe what it is. But our job is to find what hasn't been reported, what, what is being kept from the public, what is being, um, you know, hidden from the public for various reasons. And that goes from public, you know, to politics, to um, health, to, you know, school systems nationwide. It is a constant uh, barrage of asking questions for on things that a lot of people don't want don't want the public to know about, and uh, so that's truly the the biggest difference is you know we the stories that you're seeing on the on the daily news and the nightly news uh, covering of events uh, the investigative reporters are bringing those stories that you haven't heard of before um, that and that ultimately took a, a good deal of digging to get to. Jeremy, putting the paranormal stuff aside that we're going to be talking about, um, in your investigative reporting career, what's one of the stories that maybe surprised you the most or maybe that you're most proud of of uncovering and reporting on? Sure. Um, Without a doubt, um, probably the the story that I'm most proud of uh, was when we, this was, wow, this was almost a decade ago. Yeah, it was a decade ago now. Um, where we found a company, a nationwide company, that was tricking the sick and uninsured into thinking that they were buying health insurance. And we were able to actually infiltrate, and when I say infiltrate, meaning that we had employees bring in some of our hidden cameras into the business to document how they were teaching other employees to lie to people who had cancer and AIDS and, you know, really difficult diseases. And as a result of our investigations, the company was shut down. Uh, there was a huge federal raid on the company, and the uh, CEO of that um, company was just recently um, sent to prison for the work. And it paid uh, consume to paid those people back over a million dollars uh, to which they had paid. So, to me, that was that. To me, is an example of why we do this. It is. Literally, you know, I was meeting, you know, sources at late at night to transfer our hidden cameras, and and it was very difficult work to to figure out. But that kind of work is what what really makes it makes a difference, and and had one of the a, a good outcome where people did get their money back. Yeah, that's amazing, and that is very noble work. Uh, there are too many scam artists in this world, and often they prey on the most vulnerable of us. You know, the elderly. Um, and those that can least afford it. And uh, thank you for doing that kind of work, because that is amazing. Well, it's, you know, it's truly my, you know, we, we all are called to serve in one way or the other, whether it's doing shows like this, where you're, you're literally, ta- you know, tackling topics that are, you know, so taboo that some people are afraid to even discuss them, but this is a forum where they can be discussed and, and shared, and your listeners can share their stories. Um, you know, to me, you know, being a novelist is is a is a real joy. But the the work that um, you know is is the vital part, I think, of being a human being for me, at least, is in the serving my community is is doing this kind of work. Do you have um, an opinion on the state of the news media at this point? I mean, all of us that are in, in the media in some form or another are feeling. Uh, the effects of what I would call a revolution in the way people consume news and media. Uh, and it's changing things. It's making it harder f- for newspapers to survive, you know, in, in one yeah. respect. It's making it hard for some broadcast outlets to survive. Um, but it it's is. also making it hard for good, solid reporters to survive in some cases. So uh, what's your opinion of the, of the state of the media? You know, I, I I think about this all the time. And in fact, in, in before the doing the show tonight, I was actually reading this this piece about a, a CNN anchor that used to work at Fox News and and how she has to give her take occasionally on on the Fox News network. Um, you know, in a lot of ways, I like to think that we're in the golden age of journalism, in the sense that there is we are in this phase where journalism is really having to prove its merit uh, because there is so much criticism and there is so much attack from, you know, from politicians of all kinds. 
and journalists have to rise and they have to prove you know their worth and i think that's been done many many times with the brave reporters that exposed what was happening when that led to the me too movement if you if you want to be inspired watch what those two women did in terms of getting that story out about harvey weinstein uh, and what it took to to finally get that done and then you know just the the daily uh, reporting that's done by the reporters covering the Trump administration but i think your question is a is a vital one and it's an important one how does the news business survive in a world where you can easily get on your phone and just scroll through social media and i think the answer is uh, you know not only you know i have two young daughters myself and and I think it is talking to our kids and talking to each other honestly about that we have to get to a point where we are consuming information from outlets that you trust and gives you smart analysis. You can get on Facebook and you can see that your aunt posted some crazy story out of some unnamed news site or some fake news site um, that isn't a really a news site. It's just posted a story about that and shared it all over Facebook and, and people get all fired up about it. Um, but I think that, you know, it's important that you designate um, the, the news outlets that you trust for whatever reason it is. Maybe you find them to be very analytical or you, or you find them to be well-researched or, or, or whatever it is. Um, I think what people need to realize is that, is that journalism um, is, is so vital to our republic in, in so many ways in terms of the watchdog role. And I truly feel like that in and in, in you know granted I'm a little bit biased because I am deeply entrenched in the investigative world but I truly feel like it is those kinds of news outlets that are investing in investigative reporting that is showcasing what's really happening behind the scenes and exposing corruption that truly kind of brings back the message to people of what journalism is about it is holding truth to power it is about being that watchdog role i can't tell you how often i hear from people that just say Thank you for asking those questions. Thank you for digging deeper into this. And it's not a you know pat on the back kind of thing. It's people being a little bit relieved that someone is looking out for the rest of us. And you know, so it's a job we take very seriously. Um, but you're so right in the sense that the newspapers are truly struggling, and it's and it's a heartbreak because you know newspapers play such a vital role in. Uh, you know, covering our communities and giving analysis, and and it's vital. And, and you know, I work in the in the television industry, which actually isn't a television industry anymore. We're now on so many different platforms that you know we don't even call ourselves just television stations anymore. Yeah, it's all changing um, very, very rapidly. Tonight we're talking with Jeremy Finley. He's the author of a couple of books, The Darkest Time of Night, and then the new book, which just came out about a month and a half ago, called The Dark Above. His website is his name, jeremyfinley.com. Uh, Jeremy, so the first book, I think when you were on last, you had just released that first book, but the, the new book, The Dark Above, just came out a little while ago, didn't it? It did. We um, excited to uh, have it out in the world after working on it and having the continuing story, uh, you know, play out. One of my my favorite things to do is 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 to write, uh, obviously, long form journalism, but also in this sense, uh, be able to continue the saga of this family that has just uh, been. I suppose uh, infiltrated themselves by the paranormal. But what was great to write about in, in these books is this is a very American family in the sense that they're deeply rooted in politics and have a very uh, normal life um, and then are truly touched by these uh, mysterious disappearances. And this kind of begins this saga of this family uh, going uh, through the motions and through the years of trying to understand what's happening out there. So it's been a great uh, it's been a great uh, run so far, and to, just to hear from readers who've, you know, compared it to Stranger Things and to Stephen King and and the kind reviewers out there, it's uh, it's been really great, I and mean, it's it's uh, enabled me to um, keep doing what I love, which is writing these stories. The uh, stories have a very significant paranormal influence. Um... Obviously, you decided to write about them, but long ago, at some point in your life, you became interested in these paranormal topics. When did that happen? So I've always had just a fascination um, with the paranormal. I, I think that 
it it came from kind of the era of which I grew up in, which was the seventies and the eighties, um, where there were such great um, movies and and it was very heavy in pop culture. I almost kind of feel like that you know we lived through our own Stranger Things kind of a mentality with Close Encounters of the Third Kind and E. T. and and you know of course Stephen King was was out in force and then as well and. Um, so that was a big part of my uh, growing up was being fascinated about that, and then I started read, reading Carl Sagan, and I read Contact, and and you know all the greats, and, and so that was always a a real fascination of mine. And I think that part of that comes from the fact that my my daily work as a journalist is so deep, so deeply rooted in the truth that, and I'm and I'm and I'm simply always looking for. What um, you know, what I can prove, and, and everything. And what's fascinating, as you know better than anybody, is with a paranormal. There are so many strong hints that there's much more out there than than we're, what we're aware of that we can see that we know. And um, at least in my in being able to write these supernatural thrillers, I can um, really explore something that I can't quite prove and have a great time doing it. Um, but truly, it's been, I think, a lifelong passion of mine um, just to, you know, read about all kinds of uh, aspects of the paranormal and um, really just enjoy writing them in a thriller sense. I, I don't think there's anything more that I could enjoy do. The um, history that you have uh, that led you to write these books includes uh, some very strong influence from your mother-in-law's experiences, right? It is, and it's my favorite thing to talk about when it comes to these books. Um, my mother-in-law is a fantastic, quiet, elegant, just, you know, the mother-in-law that most people would, would dream to have. And she's led a very quiet life in a very big family. Um, and I, I say those things because um, she pretty much, she has about five children. I'm married to one of her daughters. And and I, again, it's important for people to know that because she's never the center of attention. Therefore, uh, while we were doing the dishes one night, um, I asked her, you know, what kind of work that she did while my father-in-law was in law school. And she went on to talk about that she was a secretary at an astronomy department. And she knows my interest in the paranormal. And she said, you know, you, you might be interested to know that one of the professors that I worked with pretty closely was a UFO researcher. And it was her job to take messages from all over the world, from people that would call in with stories of abductions and, and sightings. And I remember her saying, and you know, these people, their stories, they truly affected her because they were afraid or they were, you know, astounded or they had questions. And it really affected her. And then she left. She, my father-in-law, uh, started practicing as a lawyer, and off she went to, to raise their children, and, and that was it. But when I heard that story, I was just uh, so astounded as an aspiring novelist at the time, and I thought, there's a great story to be told here of a woman that has, you know, had this experience with the uh, paranormal, and then, you know, what would happen in her own life, which led me to write The Darkest Time of Night, which is about a politician's wife whose grandson disappears, um, and she is forced to revisit the research that she did in the late 1960s uh, when she worked for a professor who was a UFO researcher. And then that begins this family on this on this two book now saga into how they uh, in, you know ultimately face the threat that is uh, that is a. Uh, threading the entire world and with all of these mysterious disappearances. So what has really just been great is being able to fictionalize my mother-in-law's experience uh, and make it into these books that have just been so um, you know well-received by readers and reviewers. It's been a real pleasure to hear from readers as far as Czechoslovakia to Australia um, and, of course, across the United States that you know have written in and just really been... Um, you know, touched by by the uh, by what this family that I've created has gone through. So it's it's been just fantastic. Now uh, you're kind of understating the story a little bit, and I don't know if you you just don't want to go into it. But when you say your mother-in-law worked for um, an astronomy department and a professor, it wasn't just some ordinary professor. 
it was not just some ordinary professor. And I, and that's the, the great part of the story is that, like I said, because I, um, I, I knew that this would be a fictionalized version of her experience, I was very careful not to ask too many questions about what it was like, who she worked for, anything like that, because I didn't want there to be a parallel between her real life experience and then what happened in these in these thrillers, um, but about nine ten months ago, um, she was at my house and she said, "So do you want to know who the professor is?" And at that point, the dark above had been written, and I was like, "Yeah, yeah, I'd always wanted to know." And she said, "Well, he goes by the name of J. Allen Hynek. <laughs> and my again, once again, my jaw kind of hit the floor, and I'm like, "Whoa, whoa, wait a second! You mean the J. Allen Hynek? And she said, "Yeah." She said, "This is." And she said when he was, she worked for him, and of course, again, took the messages, worked for him. Um, and she's like, and then, you know, he went on to, you know, uh, do so many things, including being um, an advisor on Close Encounters of the Third Kind for obvious reasons, and uh, then go on to, um, you know, be an extra in the movie and all of these things. And, you know, it was, it was just an, I got to tell you, it was just an astonishing part of this whole thing, because I'd done so much research into Heineck, and I, you know, I, I kind of dared to dream that perhaps that, uh, that that was the professor that she worked for. Um, but it was just been a, amazing to know that that this entire story was ba- that you know that I came up with and has really changed my life in a lot of ways. Um, is is all about it all leads back to him and this this man that was hired by the government to disprove UFOs and then became one of the foremost experts in the world on UFOs. Uh, the fact that my mother-in-law worked for him and then ultimately, you know, inspired me to write these books is just one of the great stories that I'll probably tell my grandkids one day. Yeah, it's well worth telling your grandkids that story. Right, right. Um, he, uh, he, and you kind of mentioned it there, but he started his career in this particular topic or genre um, as a real hardcore skeptic. He went into Absolutely. this thinking, you know, this is all misunderstood information being reported as aliens or UFOs or whatever, but, and it can be easily explained. And he found out, wait a minute, it's not so easily explained. Right. I mean, he was an, an ac- as much an academic as you possibly could be. I mean, this was a guy that had, you know, was a, uh, was a brilliant uh, professor and scientist and, so much that the government was like, this is our guy. This is our guy to finally put a rest to this because, you know, there's a little bit of hysteria that's building. There's a lot of talk about this. This is our guy. And I think his experience without, um, I'm reading a book that's based on his life now, The Close Encounters Man. If you haven't had a chance to read that book, it's a great, great book about what he experienced and what he went through. Um, But then he just got exposed to so much of the data, like so much of us have, where um, you read these stories and you listen to what these people have to say, and you realize they they have nothing to gain by talking about this. They have there's no perk for them to come forward with these stories. They just have incredible scrutiny, and they and they've you know suffered one way or the other, um, having gone through this. And uh, I think he knew what so many of us have have come to realize that. You know, these people are speaking from a place of truth. They're talking about what they've experienced. We can't explain what it is. Um, he struggled to explain what it is, but ultimately came out and, and believes very much so that these people were telling the truth and that there is something out there uh, that he couldn't explain or, or, or it led him enough to be like there's, there's a lot more that has to be explained. And then, of course, dedicated the rest of his life to really, um, you know, trying to find the answers. Uh, odd question here. I'm not sure if you have any insight on this, but when we talk about the government hiring Heineck to, um, you know, disprove these things, do you believe that the government was trying to find the real answers to what was, the phenomena was, or do you think they were looking for a spokesman to propagate their version of the answer? You know, I was uh, just talking to somebody about this the other day. Um, you know, I, again, being deeply rooted in the real world and around politicians all the time um, and government agencies all the time, um, I think it really depends on the people that are running the agency. Um, and in that case, you know, you can look at it in the sense that there was a bit of hysteria that was growing. And, they, and, and you know, you, you speak to a whole lot of people and they say this is complete nonsense. This is no such thing as UFOs. This is whatever it is. And if you get people that are in that 
have that mindset or in the, in the, they are in positions in the government, they're going to say, you need to put an end to this. Just find the truth to these things and off we go. And so when the person that you've hired to do this comes back and says, I don't think I can do this. I, I don't think that I can, you know, sit here and say that these are false because I don't think that they're false. I, I can't, I, it, it's in a, it would be, I can only imagine what an astounding thing it was for the heads of these agencies um, you know, it would be pure speculation on, on my part. Uh, the Close Encounters Man, again, that book that's out now that tells about Hynek's life, um, you know, probably gets into that a little bit more. But, you know, and I talk about this in my books as well, you know, what would happen if there was definitive proof of UFOs? Now, this week, of course, obviously, we've had the confirmation from the uh, U.S. Navy about, they don't call them UFOs, but they call them unidentified aerial phenomenon, I think. And if your listeners and uh, didn't hear about this, get online right now and Google uh, the Navy and uh, UFOs. And, and so they've come out and said, look, you know, these videos that were never truly supposed to be released do show objects that, that we can't explain moving too fast, moving too um, quickly for the kind of aircraft that we have. And so I think that um, they know, again, what I was, you know, have gotten into the book is what would happen if this all turned out to be true and what that would do to not only our civilization, but also to our religion, to our, uh, just our daily lives to know that we're not out there, uh, we're not out there alone. And so I think that there's a lot at stake for the government in that sense that, um, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that they, too, just want the answers, that they're not obviously hiding something about this that we don't know. Um, but it, it does – there's a lot at stake uh, finding the answer to, answers to this. And so I'm sure those agencies that hired Hynek back in the day knew the same thing, that, you know, there, that there could be a degree of hysteria or whatever – if this all turned out to be true. Well, there are 3 million people or so that uh, f- are following a Facebook page called Storm Area 51, and they expect 30,000 or more to show up in that uh, region this weekend with some agenda, hopefully not not a serious agenda to storm a military facility. But those people are looking for answers and all believe the government has answers that they're keeping from us. And we're talking with Jeremy Finley tonight, author of a couple of books with a paranormal theme, The Darkest Time of Night, and the new book, The Dark Above. Jeremy, is the second book a sequel to the first? It is. It is the continuation of the story. It takes place 15 years after the disappearance of the U.S. Senator's grandson and and what his grandmother and her um, allies go to uh, extreme lengths to try and uncover the, the mystery as to why he disappeared, why he and so many others are disappearing. And so The Dark Above takes place 15 years later. I wanted to continue the story with uh, and, and kind of up the stakes a little bit about what would happen to a family in the wake of the events of The Darkest Time of Night. How do they... Um, go on with their lives after uncovering what they ultimately uncover at the end of the first book. And the second book uh, ups the, up the stakes quite a bit for this family as the disappearances begin again, and they have to um, truly once again risk everything, uh, their reputations, their, their lives, uh, to try to figure out what's happening, what's going on with this uh, global catastrophe that is coinciding with these disappearances. So it was it was a real joy to be able to continue the story uh, set 15 years later. We're going to get into more detail on the other side of the top of the hour break, but in the minute we've got left here, uh, where can people get a hold of the books? So they're everywhere that you buy books. Uh, I always encourage people to to go to their local independent bookstores, um, that it's, it's uh, all over the, the country right now. Um, you can get it online anywhere. You can get it through my website, jeremyfinley.com. Uh, but pretty much anywhere that you want to get your, uh, your audio books, your e-books, your physical copies of the books. The first book, The Darkest Time of Night, is now out in paperback, so it's, it's a lot cheaper if you want to start that way. And then, uh, then you can pick up The Dark Above as it's out now in all bookstores. Do you recommend people start with the first book? I do, just because I think that it's, it's, it's seriously affordable now in paperback, and it really sets the tone for what the story's about and, and gets you hopefully invested in this family and their efforts. And, and so when, uh, the, I always like the fact that, 
you know, we talk about binge watching TV shows. Well, in this sense, you can binge read these shows. These, this, <laughs> there we go. These books, <laughs> and um, you know, and sit down and know that when you finished one, you can st- pick right up on the second one and and see how it see how the story unfolds. Um, just looking ahead, Monday night we have a great show for you. Uh, Graham Phillips will be returning to the show to talk about an account of an extraordinary paranormal investigation that he took part in back in 1979. And then on Tuesday, Tui Snyder, author, speaker, photographer, will decode the often forgotten meanings behind cemetery symbols. This is going to be exciting for me because I love walking through cemeteries. They're peaceful, they're tranquil, and they tell so many stories. She'll also share stories from her new book called Paranormal Texas. Speaking of new books, Jeremy Finley has a new book called The Dark Above, which is a follow-up to his first book, The Darkest Time of night. Jeremy, I think you, well, I'm not sure if we talked about this when you were on last, but you and I have a friend in common in that uh, your editor, Peter Wolverton, was one of my best high school friends. I know, I remember the conversation, JV, and, and, and talked actually to Peter about that afterwards. And, um, you know, we're, we're both fortunate to know Peter. He's a, uh, he's a great guy. He's a great editor. He's tough. He's, um, but very fair, and uh, I just think it's it just goes to show what a small world we have that here you and I are having this conversation like we did last year, and Peter continues to be my <laughs> editor to this day. Uh, great guy. I, I always love hanging out with him. I don't get to see him nearly enough anymore, but I think that's just the nature of uh, you know getting older with families and all of that stuff. But sure. Um, make sure you say hello to him for me next time you speak to him, and I'll do the same on my end. Um, I want to go back to your mother-in-law's experience for just a minute because she was very pivotal in your whole story and how you uh, came to decide to write books, or these particular books anyway. Um, Did she ever talk about uh, any of the, I guess, cases or stories that she got when she was answering those phones? And ultimately, what was her opinion or what is her opinion on the existence of some of these phenomena that we're talking about? You know, it... um it's interesting because, you know, I've, I've since, of course, picked her brain a, a million times over, over these things. Like I said in, in the first hour of the show, you know, I purposely did not ask her much information about her experiences because I wanted to make sure that there was that delineation between uh, her actual experience um, and then the fictional account, uh, which I wrote uh, the, the books about. Um, but since then, I've been able to ask her a little bit more and, you know, granted, you know, she's in her 70s now, and this is when she was a young woman in her early 20s, and so she doesn't remember a whole lot of the details of the messages um, and, the, and the things that she took, but she still remembers the the feelings of the people calling and, and how they really experienced, you know, kind of true fear and, and true, um, you know, astonishment at what they had seen and wanting to share this information with with J. Allen Hynek and, and get his take on what had happened. Um, at that point, of course, he was a professor at uh, Northwestern University. That's where she worked uh, in Illinois and uh, had already started to, had already had a really strong reputation in this field. Um, but I think that um, I, I remember her talking about um, uh, J. Allen Hynek and that he was just a very nice man, a very um, uh, interesting man um, who she. Um, really had this bizarre uh, encounter with in terms of working for him and taking these messages um, that, um, you know, I think that she's, I think she's enjoying now uh, so many people knowing about this and asking her about it and, and, and kind of reliving that, you know, obviously quite strange part of her life. I don't know that you answered this. Does she believe? <laughs> Does she believe? You know, I, I, I can't speak for her because um, she would have to answer that question. I think it is a, a question that a, uh, a lot of people want a definitive answer to. I think it's a difficult answer to, a different, difficult question to answer. But I know for her, she actually has, aside from her um, experience with Heineck, she has a very good friend growing up in the small town in Illinois that we're all from. And this was a girl that she's known her entire life. And she and her husband uh, then moved to Florida, and they had an encounter where they saw, they, along with several other uh, people, uh, saw a, uh, a UFO and had a real fascinating life-altering experience with this. 
And so her friend has talked about this. So you got to think about this. You know, here my mother-in-law has worked for Heineck as a secretary. Her one of her very good friends from growing up moved away, had this real strong encounter with it. So I think that in the conversations that I've had with my mother-in-law about this, um, I think that she knows that there are people that are experiencing something that can't be easily explained and can't be explained away uh, with a with, in a in a quick brush of a stroke. Um, so I think that that is probably a long-winded answer <laughs> to what you uh, <laughs> to what you asked me. But um, I think, I know I think it was a diplomatic answer. I think it was a diplomatic yeah. answer. Um, it was, you know, my best efforts at you know being diplomatic about my mother-in-law. Exactly. Uh, well done, by the way. Um, Thank you very much. Let's talk about the maybe thirty thousand or so people that are headed to the desert to do something. Hopefully, something peaceful and hopefully, hopefully, something productive. But there are a lot of people that believe the government is uh, keeping secrets from us. That the uh, Area Fifty-One. Uh, base and facilities are harboring uh, at at best uh, alien life forms, at least um, maybe wreckage from uh, an alien spacecraft. Uh, what do you think about what's happening uh, near Las Vegas this weekend? So when the when the dark above came out was when that was really stir, first starting to stir up. So I talked about it with a number of other um, radio stations and and other kind journalists that had. had asked me about it, and I remember thinking at the beginning, this is such a colossal bad idea in the sense of do not rush a military base. This will not end well. This is just not a good idea on any <laughs> level. Um, but, you know, as you stated, J.V., you know, this started off as kind of a fun thing, and then it kind of swung the other direction of being like we're going to storm Area 51, and now I kind of think maybe it's moved back to a kind of celebration of the unknown and, and, and questioning about that. Um, I think, though, that the people that truly did like this idea of, hey, they can't stop us all if we all rush Area 51 um, is, is a bit of a reckless, you know, I will say, concept, but it does tap into this mindset, truly this kind of paranoia that a lot of us are experiencing in our uh, daily life. You know, we, there's, there's so much mistrust going on uh, on so many levels of the, of the government, of what, if what we're being told is true, this kind of thing. So I think that that all comes from that place. This all comes from that place of, of not having the answers and desperately wanting to find the answers and, and exposing what people think might be hidden there. Uh, I think a celebration is a great idea. I think it's a, if these people come and they are like-minded individuals that can really talk about this and share ideas, it's great. If anybody tries to rush a military base, I just strongly encourage you to think twice about yeah. Uh, about doing that. This is a military base. Whatever happened there, whatever secrets or secrets may not be there, it is a military base, and the government doesn't screw around with these things. People will be arrested, and it will not be good. So hopefully it will end up being the type of event that maybe can go on yearly, where people can gather and have these conversations and really enjoy uh, this part of, uh, you know, the paranormal that we all, you know, are just so fascinated about. Yeah. And, you know, people who are from the area that are uh, trying to uh, marshal this into a productive weekend are saying that, you know, uh, even getting to Area 51 is going to be probably the most dangerous part of the whole process. If someone was right. to try to do this, the desert at night is not a place that's very hospitable. Yeah. There are rattlesnakes. There are scorpions. There are a lot of right. ways you can get hurt or killed. So, again, we're all saying don't do that. But. Um, there are going to be a lot of people there, and it seems like there are going to be some pretty cool uh, speakers that are going to be talking about the topics that we're talking about, among other things. So hopefully it will be productive. Um, when you uh, started to write about these particular topics, uh, your mother-in-law was an influence, um, but you know there are a lot of, uh, of people that have had experiences that have been pretty high profile. Any of them also offer you some uh, inspiration in writing these stories? 
Absolutely. So as we talked about in the first hour, you know, even though that these are supernatural thrillers, um, I very much wanted them to have the, in everything that I write in the fictional world, have that degree of, of truth and um, accuracy to them. I think that's the most important thing. I had another uh, journalist ask me what the similarity was between journalism and writing fictional novels. And, you know, I said it is, it is that accuracy. It is the feeling that you are truly um, experiencing. If something seems real. You know, obviously in journalism it is real. But when it comes to a, a work of fiction, and I say that because before I started writing these books, I did a really deep dive that has continued to this day into the researchers in the 1950s, 1960s, and early 1970s because I want, really wanted to capture what that would have been like to have the same questions that we have in 2019, but not have what we had in 2019 in terms of the Internet and the accessibility that we have to wealths of information and experiences all over the world. And so I did. I studied the cases, but more so just studying the famous cases. I really looked at how the uh, investigators, you know, took a you know, used as, as, as much as they could of the resources at their time. Uh, but you have to realize, even... At that point, making phone calls overseas wasn't easy. Right. And so, um, you know, how do you compare notes from somebody in, on one side of the globe to the other that have had similar experiences? So I think that was something I really tried to um, capture in these novels and also um, really talk about how much these, what they had at risk, right, what they, what they risked in doing this kind of work uh, beyond just the scrutiny, beyond just the teasing and all of that. Um, you know, when you're in a, a, a you know, the, the country was in a much different place in the uh, late 60s and early 70s and, of course, the 1950s. Um, and I think, of course, things obviously changed in the 70s in terms of a, of a mindset. Um, but, you know, there was, there was personal reputations at stake. So I really wanted to, you know, get into that and, of course, fictionalize that in the sense of, you know, how much did the government want to hide? How much did they want to keep this from coming out? Um, but it makes for great um, uh, information to write thrillers beyond just the nonfiction count, accounts of those times. But it just makes a great uh, pacing for thrillers to to look at that and then, you know, trying to create people that are, um, you know, fighting against the government to try to expose this, uh, what really happened. I let that uh, bumper song play a little longer than we normally do because of that rap that Debbie Harry, by the way, Debbie Harry from Cooperstown, New York, where I happen to live now. Um, but that rap that she does during that song called Rapture is uh, about the man from Mars, which is kind of cool, given the conversation we're having tonight with Jeremy Finley. Uh, Jeremy, I want to go back to the discussion about the Navy and how they recently affirmed that videos that had been released a little bit w- ago are honestly unidentifiable to them. You know, often we're, we're treated with explanations like weather balloons or test aircraft or um, it was swamp gas, whatever it happens to be. But this time they came out and said, yes, these videos that many of people have seen and you reference them are unexplainable and they're doing things that we can't explain. That is a major, major step forward in what we would call disclosure, don't you think? Oh, absolutely. I think that is the, the key word in all of this is, you know, so often we have uh, heard, seen the blacked out documents and the, and the things like that that have never really uh, given us much of a confirmation from the government from what they had or hadn't seen. And, you know, I was, I was reading up about that actually before we, we did this, had this conversation because I wanted to know the very latest in reporting from CNN and from other reliable sources, um, news sources, uh, talking about that, you know, the government is saying, look, we, we had these. We never intended them to be out in the public. This was never something that was supposed to be released. And if you watch the videos, I encourage your listeners to get online and to watch the videos because it's incredibly fascinating to see that they have lasered in. And when I say lasered in, they, you see these videos where they've got these objects in a scope, and that's the best way I can describe it is it's in a scope, and they're, and they're kind of having a difficult time following it, and then all of a sudden it just moves um, to, to the left in one of the videos, and it's just astonishing how quickly it goes, and that it's so fast, it's unclear if, if even the, the Navy's equipment can keep up with it. In one of the descriptions that I, uh, that I read 
um, that they talked about that you know aircraft that we have um, can't even move that fast. And as someone that's around drones quite a bit, drones are now used quite a bit in our storytelling uh, for uh, television news. Um, you know, they can move fast, but they can move Not that like fast. that. Do you think there's a shift in attitude among the public as well? I mean, you know, one of the things that I think is really impressive, impressive about your work is that it's been compared to things like uh, Stranger Things and the X-Files. It seems like the appetite for entertainment uh, that focuses on this type of phenomena is growing uh, rather significantly as well. That would indicate to me that people are hungry for this stuff. I think so, and I, I know that... Um, you know, you always want your work to be compared to something that you love, right? And I'm such a fan of the X-Files and such a fan of Stranger Things and the work of Stephen King and authors like Justin Cronin and, and things of, the, of that nature. So to have your books compared to that is a great thing. But I think what is the, the chord that it strikes is that we we're, these are tough times, right? I mean, these are volatile times. There's a, a real tension, I think, in the in the world that we live in. And so... It's a relief, frankly, to be able to go in and, and read books that kind of take you away from that or to tap into that, you know, paranormal interest that so many of us have in a, in a way that is, uh, you know, just kind of a relief. And I think that is the thing that, you know, I really enjoy doing, which is taking my, my love for the, for the paranormal and unanswered questions and writing it in this sense. And, and I truly think that's why Stranger Things is so big and, and why Stephen King continues to be the success that he is and, um, and why there is such a, you know, love for shows like the, like the X-Files now, because I think it is the, the times that we live in and that there is this constant question of, you know, are we being told the truth? Is there more out there? Um, so it's a it's a good time to I think to be in in the uh, in the realm of writing in this in this kind of uh, space. The focus this weekend in Nevada is, of course, Area Fifty One, which is a U.S. military facility. Do you think the military is getting a bad rap in this whole discussion of alien and uh, uh, disclosure or lack of disclosure, or do you think uh, that they are kind of bringing it on themselves, or none of the above? Well, you know, the, the frustration that I have a lot of times with government agencies is that I, is, is that key word is dis, uh, disclosure and transparency, right? And I always tell agencies when I'm looking for information, just tell the truth, right? And it seems so simple, but it's like, just tell what you know. And, and, you know, and, and we as the uh, collective uh, people of the United States will be able to handle whatever is out there. Um, I, I think that it, it, there's so much uh, resistance now um, to, you know, people want to have a certain agenda. They want to, you know, present the facts in a way that benefits them to the, to the most. Um, and I think that what, what has always plagued Area 51 is that at the time, um, this, I, I always got to get the feeling in doing the research I've done on Area 51 and, and listening to the people there, is that there was this kind of effort to hush this up as to whatever happened, and then the re, and, and then the re, when they came out with the explanation as to what it was, uh, you know, the people around there were like, "Wait, really? This is what <laughs> we're supposed to believe that this is?" And it's just never stopped, right? Even though you know the government has come out many times and said, you know, there, there's nothing nefarious happening here. Um, when you think about the eyewitnesses of what they saw and the people who were there that day, it does not mesh up. So it strikes back, I think, to people's um, that what we're experiencing today. You know, are we being told the truth? So I think it is refreshing when we have weeks like this, when we have this kind of disclosure about um, you know what the what the Navy saw, and you know, of course, they're you know they're not coming out and saying, look, we you know we've seen spaceships here. That's what we're dealing with. They're just simply saying we captured things on in these videos that we cannot explain. Right. We don't know what they are, and so I think that that um, really just um, continues on that mindset that you know has plagued Area Fifty One for all these years. When we talk about abductions, um, do you have an opinion on, as to whether or not people are actually being abducted by some type of extraterrestrial life form? So it's interesting because I've obviously done a deep dive into um, people's experiences and 
And what always haunts me, and I know you've probably ran ran into the same thing as well, is how someone on one side of the planet can have an experience so similar, almost identical to an experience of someone on the other side of the planet. And how can that be, right? How can that be? Is there something that is in our collective minds that triggers something that is so similar to describe? Um, You know, I, I have to think that, it, like I said before, and, I, and I've said this probably repeatedly throughout these last uh, hour or so, is that these people have nothing to gain, right? They have nothing to gain, open up scrutiny when they talk about these stories. So if they're going to come out and tell people, you know, I really feel like that I was abducted, that I was taken into something and I was, you know, experimented upon or whatever, um, there's nothing that they have to gain from that. There's nothing that good that comes from that. Um, so what I always say is I believe the people, right? I believe these people telling these stories uh, for that sheer fact. Um, if people were making millions of dollars off these uh, you know, stories, then you could have a bit more scrutiny. But I, for one, know they have nothing to gain. And uh, it's difficult to make these claims when you have no proof. Um, so, I, you know, at the end of the day, um, we're either dealing with an incredibly um, complicated uh, aspect of our brains that we can't fully understand or something truly supernatural is happening to these people. And there seems to be more talk about not just abduction, but this uh, alien hybrid program. In fact, we had a filmmaker on the program not long ago with a new film about the topic. And some people believe they're not only being abducted, but they're being abducted and then having embryos or some type of implantation of a fetus and then they're being abducted again and the pregnancy is mysteriously disappearing and the fetus is gone or something it's pretty complicated um but these stories are becoming more common as well yeah i think so i you know i actually get asked about that quite a bit i think it is one of the topics in uh this realm that um that people are really fascinated about fascinated about this hybrid aspect of, of what's going on of you know, what people believe is going on. And, um, you know, you, you really get into some really uh, volatile conversations with people. Are, are these, you know, were these types of, you know, experiments of, uh, of something that was just of a nefarious purpose by doctors or who knows what? Um, but there's a, a, str- a strong belief in that there may be something to this hybrid um you know, thought process of, you know, this is what's going on. I think is the, is the journalist in me will always say, show me the proof, right? Show me the truth, show me the proof. And that's the frustrating thing with, obviously, the paranormal is that a lot of times there isn't proof. So, you know, I'm always interested to hear what people have to say. But, you know, speaking of that filmmaker, you know, that's something that I would definitely like to see if, if he or she, you know, was able to come up with some definitive proof or, you know, we just have to be very careful, I think, about, you know, our sensibilities and, and, and that it's, you know, exploring topics like that, um, you know, they need to be grounded in some kind of proof. And so that would that would really be an interesting um, documentary or film to see to see what that person's got. Yeah, you know, the, the few stories I've heard and the few people I've talked to that say they have experienced this type of phenomena are very emotional about it. It's hard to deny that they've experienced something, as you indicated when we were just talking about abductions. And the third part of all this is uh, implantation. Some people say they have little devices, little chips, little metal things that they that emit uh, RF, radio fre- frequencies, um, in their hands, in their legs, behind their ears. Uh, and some doctors have indicated they've pulled some things out. Um, that's another phenomenon we've got to address here. It is, and it's it's been debated forever. And I think that, you know, made popularized by uh, cinema and, and movies and and of course, um, you know that's actually one of the uh, aspects of the thrillers that I have written is, you know, what what has happened to these people who have returned from being abducted? What is in them? And of course, I come up with a fictionalized um, aspect as to what's um, happening in my books. Um, but addressing and what people feel like that they have experienced, you know, it, it goes back to that. You know, the body is a very strange thing, and people feel like they have experienced things and. Maybe they have. Maybe they truly have, and we just don't have the technology yet to understand it. But I think you do have to um, really listen to people that make those kind of claims and and hear what they have to say, and you know sympathize with them to you know whatever they've gone through and 
Um, you know, I always tell people, I'm like, look, you know, demand the proof, right? Demand the documentation. Demand to see uh, what, if people are, are talking about something, be like, show me your doctor's report. Show me where this has come from. And uh, because I think it's, 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 um, it makes for great conversations and, and really great, you know, speculative thought. Uh, but at the end of the day, whatever these people have experienced, whether it is with pregnancies or, or feeling like they've had something put on their bodies, um, you know, it, 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 they really need to have, you know, the, the true medical attention given to them um, and, and really be able to flesh out what happened to them because they have experienced something that's traumatic for them. And, and you know, they deserve answers as well. And we bring up all of these topics because all of this discussion relates to the inspiration that you had uh, when you started writing this book series. Again, the first book in the series, The Darkest Time of Night. When you finished that and it, people started reading it, did you have people approach you saying, you know, that story touched me because I've had this experience? Sure, absolutely. Um, you know, signing books and, and meeting and talking to people and getting emails. I get lots and lots of emails from people uh, with, you know, telling me their stories and their experiences. And, um, you know, a lot of people will, you know, they obviously know that this is a work of fiction, but, you know, they, it does open them up to, they can come to, to me and say, hey, you know, I can't really talk about this to my, you know, girlfriend or my you know, whatever, um, you know, but I really feel like this happened to me and here's why. And, um, you know, that's what, as a, you know, I listen to people for a living and I let, tell their stories for a living and, and I, and not, you know, in this uh, new career of mine as well as a novelist, you know, I, I like to listen to people's stories and, and then create my own, you know, uh, you know, stories that, that are inspired by that. Um, but yeah, it happens, it happens quite a bit and it's always so fascinating. And, and I'm always like, glad that they reached out because um you know it makes that connection between a, a reader and a novelist but also just a kind of like a kindred spirit right i'm i'm here to listen to the stories betty and barney hill one of the most famous abduction cases travis walton another very very famous case i'm, I'm sure you looked into both of those cases as you were writing absolutely because you know those are kind of like the building blocks right the, the foundation to where all, a lot of this came from of course there have been stories and reports of abductions through through the centuries but um, in our modern era those were the ones that really got people's attention and again you know they those those people they they opened them up to a huge amount of scrutiny oh yeah uh, what they endured and so i think that's a true example of what and you think about um fire in the sky and all yep. of those uh you know blue collar men and women uh, who had these experiences and they you know, all they did was open them up to scrutiny. So you, again, you got to ask yourself: Why would they if do they it? Had an experience. Why did they do it? Yeah. If they didn't experiment, experience this, why did they come? Let's out jump. With it? Let's jump to the phone lines before we run out of time because I've neglected the phones all night. This is TJ in Rhode Island. Hey, TJ, welcome. Hey, thank you, JV, and I want to say hello to your guests and point out that I am a, uh, an aficionado of the original precursor. Mirror image of the X-Files, as you know, The Invaders from 52 years ago, a Quinn Martin production, where you have David Vincent running around like some latter-day Cassandra, knowing the truth (laughs) and unable to convince anyone in the public of its truth. So I want to say what he thought of that series. And secondly, I wanted to touch on the Navy video and the fact that there was an admission of ignorance on the part of an authoritative body like the Navy, because I've always heard the concern was fear in the public if there were ever disclosure. And I'm looking at it from the point of view that this would be an incremental step one in a full disclosure, because you can gauge fear and reaction of the public if there is any, and if you see it, you can draw back by saying, no, 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 we actually know what's going on here. Everybody go back. Don't worry about anything. And then if there isn't, as there is now, because it seems mostly I hear nothing but crickets from the public regarding that statement of ignorance, that you can move on later step by step to uh, what people want, which is, I guess, the grand press conference and some global television network. Yeah, those are great points, TJ. Uh, are we looking at a step-by-step disclosure here, kind of ease the information in, Jeremy? You know, and I think TJ really raised some great questions and also um, made me think about something. So if you look at the videos from the Navy, right, they are not dramatic in the sense of 
you can tell what they are. Let's say, let's let's flip the narrative and say, let's say it's incredible video of what was clearly a spacecraft. We'd be in a totally different environment, right? Right, right? We would all be, I mean, it would be what everybody is talking about on the front page of every paper, nonstop on CNN and Fox News and MSNBC. But Butch, you've got is some grainy video that shows something pretty interesting. Um, but I think that's the that's the difference maker. The difference maker is that it's not dramatic video. It doesn't really show you that much. Um, it's just enough. It's just enough to say, "Hey, this is kind of weird," but not enough to to be um, so speculated that it would run nonstop on our twenty four hour news channel. TJ, again, thanks for the phone call. Um, we're running out of time here. I, just, did you want to address the Invaders uh, point that TJ made? I'm not sure if that's a show that you're familiar with. Well, it's actually not a show that I'm, I've ever watched, but I'm familiar with. So I, I remember the premise, and I also think of some of the other shows where they've always been like, you know, the detective or the, or the cop that was, um, uh, you know, always investigating these paranormal shows. And, and I'm with TJ in the fact that I've, I think that this is all. This this reoccurs, right? We have these, um, you know, times in our lives where these shows become very popular, and then then there'll be the X Files, and there'll be something else. And um, I think it just is very indicative of the of the different, um, you know, environments that we're living in, and it's certainly indicative of the time we're in now. Jeremy, thirty seconds left here. Your books are the darkest time of night, and the follow up book, the dark above. And again, where can people get them? Any bookstore, any bookstore, anywhere online. I always recommend your independent bookstore. Please go there. Um, if you get a chance, the, the first book, The Darkest Time of Night, is out in paperback. Uh, you can start there. It's much more affordable, and I would love to hear from you. If, you. if you get a chance to read these books, please hit me up on my website, jeremyfinley.com. It's one of the best parts of being a novelist is hearing from the people that read your books. Jeremy, thanks for being here. Looking forward to having you back again sometime soon. All right, JV, it was great. You have a good night, and I'll t- tell Peter Wolverton you said hello. Perfect. Remember, if you are headed to Nevada and you're anywhere around Area 51, let's be peaceful, let's be smart, let's be safe, um, and let's be productive. All those things will go a long way to achieving some of these goals that we all share. Uh, remember, we've got a best of tomorrow night. We'll see you again Monday night. It's Beyond Reality Radio. Thanks for being here, everybody. Have a great weekend. Beyond Reality Radio is hosted by Jason Hawes and J.V. Johnson and produced by Alexandria Johnson and Slick Eddie Edwards for Intercom Radio. Beyond Reality Radio is distributed by Westwood One Radio Networks. Stop by our Facebook page and say hello. Follow the hosts on Facebook as well. For Jason Hawes, follow at JasonHawes.Taps. For J.V. Johnson, follow at JVJParanormal. If you'd like to be a guest on Beyond Reality Radio or you have a suggestion for a guest, contact Slick Eddie Edwards at SlickEddieEdwards at gmail.com. Be sure to visit our chat room as well at beyondrealityradio.com. Thanks for listening.